art is good for business. Even like in banks or corporations, just having a, an art collection, it encourages um, conversation. I think it also stimulates creativity. Welcome to The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, yes, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wanda for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wanda are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. Find out more at wanda.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. I'm your host, Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO, Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we look at the future of work and art by stepping into the world of executive director of the Goss Michael Foundation, Joyce Goss. The Goss Michael Foundation is internationally renowned for its collection of important, contemporary and modern British art. Joyce is a leading philanthropist and activist in the art world and has served in executive positions, a board member and chair of key events for The Family Place, MTV Redefine, US Fund for UNICEF and the Nasher Sculptor Center, among others. We're going to focus the conversation around the Goss Michael Foundation and the amazing work that they do. But let's start by finding out what sparked the art bug in Joyce's life. I have two segments on that one. The first was when I was little growing up, I um, took ballet lessons and I was just really into um, ballet. And my mother bought a little Degas print that she hung in my bedroom, a little ballerina, you know, he's famous for his ballerinas. And so I would stare at that every night when I was going to bed and think about how I was going to be a world-class ballerina. And I had this, and I grew up in the seventies. And so they had this doll that was called Dance Arena that was, she would twirl and twirl and twirl. She was battery operated. and. Um, I don't know, just staring at that, at that print every night just uh, kind of opened up a new world for me and definitely made me dream. The second fold of that would be when I started working with Kenny at the gallery. It just opened up a whole new world for me. Um, and then ultimately when we uh, converted to a foundation, um, getting the opportunity to meet all these fabulous world-class artists and arguably some of the best in the world, getting to know them on a personal level, it changes your whole outlook. Uh, or did for me on art and made me kind of understand where they were coming from. Joyce, I'm going to stay with your, your childhood. You grew up on a farm in Pleasanton. What was the impact that that had on you as an adult? I grew up with three sisters, so we weren't out in the fields toiling every day. Um, but my father did instill, and my mother too, the value of hard work and um, you know taking something and having a lot of pride and joy in your work. Also, um, I think humility. We um, you know learned uh, up to accept and celebrate what we had, but also to uh, when you did have a success, you celebrate that and accept that as well. So I think humility, and then also. Probably one of the biggest things is to be adaptable when you're growing um, crops, but also just, you know, day-to-day -day practice when you have a piece of equipment breakdown or you have a worker that doesn't show up, you have to be able to adapt and, uh, and make changes. And so I would always watch my father um, when he had some kind of a crisis come up, how he just, um, you know, made a new plan, set a new course and was adapted. Out of curiosity, what, what crops was it that your family grew on the farm? 
Well, there was a lot. My, he was kind of a farmer and a rancher. Um, so initially when we were growing up, he had wheat and maize and some cotton um, and then peanuts. He was a big peanut producer. Um, and then also he raised Charlotte cattle. It's the real formative years of your life that were on the farm. Yeah, it was. And it was fun. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it definitely um, gave me a different perspective on things. But I think, you know, always hard work, I think, was the biggest thing. You mentioned earlier briefly your, your brother, Kenny. You've traveled this journey in art together with him. Tell us, what's it like traveling the, a journey with, with, with your brother? What's it like being in, in the... So Kenny is actually my brother-in-law, but nobody really knows that because we don't really advertise that. My, I'm married to Kenny's brother, but Kenny and I have always gotten along so well. Even when um, Tim, my husband, and I first started dating, Kenny and I would sneak off and go to the Walmart to go shopping or, you know, uh, in Dallas, we'd go to museums or, you know, shopping was a big deal for us. But museums and, um, I don't know, we just got along. So we really are like brother and sister. So when people say that, we just kind of go with it because it's kind of confusing and then people go oh he's your brother-in-law <laughs> but yeah we get along great he, we've always just kind of clicked from the very beginning and so um, we have a really deep friendship and a great relationship Kenny started a, a Goss Gallery in 2005 and he had that for about a year which I came to, to work uh, and run the gallery because he and George were still in uh, London quite a bit he trusted me to run the gallery. And after that, Kenny and George started collecting um, all this great art and some of it museum quality that was just sitting in storage. So that's why we all discussed and started um, discussions about forming the foundation where they could um, exhibit those great works of art uh, in Dallas, which is you know, where Kenny grew up, kind of start educating the, the local public on uh, British art, which really wasn't a huge thing back in, you know, when they started the foundation. And still, I don't think any of the museums had a Damien Hirst piece. Um, I don't know if they ever exhibited Damien Hirst, honestly. And so bringing um, British contemporary art to, to this area uh, that, you know, some people may not ever have had the opportunity to see and bringing some of the, the fabulous artists like Tracy Emin and uh, Damien never came, but Michael Craig Martin did and uh, Mark Quinn and a lot of these fabulous um, YBA artists that were from London. Doug was actually asking me whether the focus is very much on British artists and so would love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, was that very much where Kenny wanted to go with this? Did he want it to be a focus on British work that wasn't really showcased and highlighted in the U.S. market? Originally, that wasn't his intent when he first started collecting. Um, but, you know, the fact that, that they lived in London and Kenny did for so long, they um, would go to a lot of the museums. Kenny had a dear friend that would take him to the museums and um, she had studied art history and, and it, you know, increased his knowledge about the historical aspect of art. With George, got to meet some of these artists, Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin is, is a dear friend. And Michael Craig Martin, who um, is considered the godfather of the YBA movement because he taught a lot of these uh, students. Um, Sarah Lucas, who is you know, a fantastic artist, um, who else we have? Richard Patterson, who actually lives in Dallas. And so he got to be friends with a lot of these, and of course the dealers as well. And I it was just a natural progression that he and George started collecting the British artists. And then you know, when they decided to open the foundation, it was kind of a joy for them to be able to bring the art to Dallas um, and exhibit it. And then it just kind of 
worked into that to collecting British arts, and then they just started focusing um, the British artists in the collection. Can you maybe just expand a little bit on the YBA movement and why it's significant and why it's important? Sure. So the YBAs, which are the young British artists, they all laugh now saying that really they're the OBAs because they're all in their um, probably 50s now, but or 40s and 50s. And so it was started in the 90s. Craig Martin um, taught Damien Hurst for one and several of the other students, but London was the art scene at that time. So he encouraged these artists to go out and, you know, be free thinkers. And um, so Damien with a group of friends, Sarah Lucas and um, Tracy and some others started Freeze. It was a way for them to um, exhibit their works and make themselves known. And they were also kind of a, a wild group in the 90s. This was in the 90s. And they were young and, and then started to get famous and wealthy, and but still had a little wild streak. So that was kind of the big movement in the 90s, the YBAs. And, and London was the center of the art scene. You can definitely see that they were a very tight-knit, close group of artists because there is a theme that runs through their work. It's very, very apparent, you know, when you actually start looking at their work rather than looking at them as individual artists, but you actually look at them more holistically as a group. Oh, definitely. A lot of them dated several, you know, different people. <laughs> some of them got married, some of them got divorced. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a... a a young group and they were fun and they were kind of the it group of the 90s. And a lot of their work is, is you know, about themselves, um, on a, especially artists like Tracy. Um, a lot of her work, her paintings and sculptures are, are from her own experiences growing up. Talking about the artists themselves, uh, George Michael's legacy carries through very strongly within the foundation. How does his legacy impact the way you and Kenny work on a day-to-day -day basis? When George um, and Kenny first started the foundation, George loved the art, but it was more of Kenny's, um, I think Kenny's thing, for a lack of a better thing to say. Um, George definitely was interested, but his art was more in the music, and Kenny's was more in the visual arts and, and the, the YBAs. And George loved it, don't get me wrong, but um, he wanted Kenny to kind of focus on the art. But that said, George has always been very, or was always very philanthropic, and he... Um, gave away tons and tons of money, most of it anonymously. He didn't want to be known as the guy flashing around the money. He really wanted to, um, to make a difference. And so one of his points when we started the foundation was that we had to give back to the community. And so that was kind of my um, direction that I took with the foundation too, obviously with the art, but also getting more involved in, in like the family place and the North Texas Food Bank and UNICEF, of course. And so we would offer the foundation space to these organizations uh, for free and we'd you know give our manpower and our mailing list and to try to help these various organizations raise money and um, maybe gain a little bit more recognition and help them raise money so it was kind of a twofold when we started the foundation giving back to the community but also educating and inspiring artists too. One of the things that I really admire about what you guys are doing in the foundation is the way you guys are supporting and developing emerging artists and there's something that I feel within that and within the framework that you guys apply in the foundation that can really be applied in corporate contexts that isn't really spoken about or even considered in in many ways and so I'd like to ask you and I'd like to hear your thoughts around this art and work intersect in very very interesting ways and 
share with us how you guys work in the foundation with artists. How do you guys go about identifying work and how do you guys go about supporting artists to move from a place of just being an artist that's more a hobby to actually somebody who's making a career and a living from this? What does that development framework look like? Well, I think that one of the ways we help artists is uh, our artist in residence program, which, you know, that's on pause at the moment. But um, we've had, uh, I don't know, five or six artists in residence, some local, some international that we would bring to Dallas because you kind of have, like you're saying, art is work. And these artists uh, maybe start out as a hobby, but they don't always necessarily put in their mind the, the fact that this is a business, too, that this is a way for them to make a living and they have to think about it as well so we um when we start the artist in residence program we would have the artists come to town and and you know they would obviously work on paintings mainly paintings um it was a little bit easier than sculpture so most of the times we'd have them do paintings but and uh they hone their craft but also kenny and i would encourage them to start networking and trying to sell themselves so we would take them to different events uh, or you know museum openings and try to to introduce them to collectors new collectors and old collectors and and uh, try to make them um, understand the value of networking and selling themselves we really strongly encourage that and also they needed to to even kind of work on the business side of it learning to sell themselves i think is the hardest thing and practicing even like public speaking whether it's to you know a small group of collectors or it's a you know a room full of people i think that's one thing that's really hard for some of the artists to learn because usually they're more creative and not so much outspoken i mean there's some that are that are you know natural salesmen so to speak there's some great artists that can speak you know at the drop of a hat, but then others, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a learning situation for them. Organizations are so fractured in terms of how they work. And yet, because we're becoming more and more globalized as a world, and because we're dealing with a younger generation that are so consumerized in how they engage with the world, that organizations are just completely having to reinvent themselves in terms of like how they serve their customer. You guys have recognized, you know, that there's a big hole in art education because it doesn't teach the business of art. It, it just teaches the art of art. And the exact same thing is playing out in corporations today is that they absolutely need to meet and serve the customer, but the skill set of customer centricity and the skill set of, of customer service is just not there in the way that it needs to be. Right. You know, I agree a hundred percent. And then, you know, you've got the whole, um, with again, the pandemic, but you've also got the whole digital, um, aspect of art too, which is kind of a little bit different tangent. I forgot to talk about that earlier, but yeah, teaching, um, you know, with Instagram and, and WhatsApp and these other technical applications, I guess, um, it's opened up a whole new world for these artists too. You know, art is good for business. I mean, you know, even like in banks or corporations, just having an art collection, it encourages conversation. It, you know, it's a, it's a nice respite for the employees to just go sit and stare at a painting if they can. I mean, I think it also stimulates creativity. How do you guys see that changing? Because naturally that would have been one of the biggest, you know, drivers of large purchases of art is, you know, in the corporate world. With the pandemic and how that's changing things and with work going digital, where do you see that going? What is your direction, you know, from the foundation's lens going to be to artists? 
it's kind of scary and it's, it's still a kind of uncharted territory. I mean, you know, the museums are all having to refocus. Um, you know, some of them have just now started reopening again. Um, who knows now, since cases are going back up, they may change it again, but uh, they're rethinking how art is exhibited, whether it's, you know, on a virtual platform or if it's, you know, physical with the, the actual buildings and museums, which I think you need both. You can look at a piece of art, uh, digitally but when you see in person it just it creates a whole different experience and so i think it, we're always going to have to have the physical viewing of the art the artists right now are are lucky that they're able to be able to use a social platform because you know otherwise they may not be able to sell any work at the moment with again the museums and galleries being closed and coming back to your point about you know the social connectedness of, and why art is such a critical piece within work, there's a few hypotheses that I believe are true and valid for the future of work. The first one is that our workplaces have to become more human. And I think the fact that we've just gone through this massive change in how we work has forced us into that. There's no way that you can expect an entire globe to go back to work after having worked at home for the better part of an entire year and go back to just that like very hard sterilized, this is work, this is home. Life is blended now. And it it's going to force a more human workplace. But also my second hypothesis is that the companies who are gonna remain competitive and who are gonna be able to stay in business are gonna be those ones that are fully customer centric. And that requires really human skills. And I think art is going to play a very big part of that in the workplace. So maybe share with us some examples of, you know, and you were starting down this track of how art actually forms that social connectedness in work and, and where you've seen really powerful examples of it. Let's say you walk into a bank building and you just see a bunch of blank walls. Well, that's not very stimulating. But if you walk into a bank and you see these beautiful pieces of art, it creates some, you know, conversation. Um, I think it just automatically reduces stress. I think it also, for the employees, it, um, it increases their creativity and production. I think a lot of times when you just need to take a little bit of a break, <laughs> if you've been staring at your computer all day, sometimes it's nice to just take a little bit of a walk and go see a beautiful piece of art and just kind of lose yourself for a second. But I think also that um, it kind of works as a social connector too. I mean, art, um, if you have two people, you know, looking at, a, looking at a painting, I think it bridges people together and, and they can discuss ideas about what they see. So I think it also is kind of a, almost a, a way to network. That may be kind of pushing it a little bit, but I think it does encourage conversations. It kind of tells you a lot about the company too, even in the art that, that are, you know, on view in, in the different institutions. I think it, it tells you about the company and, and what they represent too. So it's kind of way of um, identification, if you will. Coming back to Tracy Emin, who you brought up earlier in the conversation, who was one of the critical people within that YBA group of the 90s. Back in 2011, she, <clears throat> David Cameron invited her to install a piece of artwork into 10 Downing Street. And it's a new, it's one of her neon, neon pieces of art, um, which she's very well known for, as you would know. And it was the two simple words, more passion. I was invited to number 10 Downing Street as part of a business event um, a few years back. And the contrast of that neon sign in what is a very, very traditional British home, okay? Because it's, you know, it's just so steeped in 
culture and everything that is British. And just this massive neon sign in the terracotta room right outside David Cameron and his wife's home. It was just so striking that every single one of us business professionals who were, you know, at this cocktail reception, it really got a conversation started. And it wasn't just because the art was, it was definitively out of place. And I think that was very much what Tracy was wanting to achieve with that piece of art because it was such a contrast. And that is actually what struck the conversation. But it was the words themselves as well, you know. And so the combination of all of it created such a powerful experience that I think that more than the actual reason why we were there at 10 Downing Street that night dominated the conversation. I think that that for me is is one of my biggest life moments in terms of how transformative art really can be. Oh, it can. And yeah, Tracy's one of those artists that definitely um, is, I don't want to say in your face, but she will definitely spark a conversation. <laughs> I'm going to move the conversation on and, and leave corporate behind for a second. And I'd like you to tell us about the playground initiative that you run within the foundation. What playground was, which is, um, I wish I could take credit for it, but one of our previous employees and a local artist um, decided to put together uh, kind of a summer, cramp, a summer camp for art. Ariel and, and CJ, the artist, got together with um, a couple of the teachers in um, some of the um, South Dallas area schools uh, to bring art in a summer camp to those children that probably ordinarily wouldn't get the opportunity to, to go to a summer camp, much less an uh, art-centric summer camp. The teachers and, and some of our staff members got found objects, and of course we had paint, and, and we turned our whole gallery space into just a giant art classroom, and we covered the walls with paper, and the floors were covered with paper, and then we had all this found objects and uh, paint supplies, and, and for a week we just kind of let the, the kids just be creative and it was quite fascinating but there was just a fun um, event and the kids really um, it was a great opportunity to see how they grew too at the beginning they were a little bit quiet and shy but by the end of the week they were so proud of the work they had done and and it, you know brought something out of uh, each of them which I think was um, was fantastic too. What age groups were these? They were middle school uh, elementary and middle school so a little bit younger kids which was it which was fun but it was a great experience for them and for the parents too. At the end of the week, the parents came in and, and got to see the work that their children did. And if they could take it home, they, you know, they were able to take it home. And we had just an overall fun art camp experience, but it, we saw a lot of creativity. Joyce, that it segues very well into my next question that I want to ask specifically about the foundation. How do you guys measure impact? We kind of do so many different things. We're not just one little focused foundation, which um, which is kind of nice that we're as a private foundation, we're able to a little bit um, be a little bit more creative, so to speak. So obviously, with you know with the art, we're able to expand and and, and bring the artists to town, and then on the uh, philanthropic side, helping organizations locally and internationally, such as UNICEF. Um, so how do we gauge? I mean, I think on the art side. Um, the fact that we have been able to bring artists, um, international artists, to Dallas and some of the students, you know, we have in the past done a lot with Booker T and other schools too, but uh, having the opportunity for these students to to see some 
you know, art that they may never get to see, um, meet artists that they may never have the opportunity to meet, and not even students, but you know, just uh, adults as well. We had the first couple of UNICEF experience events um, because UNICEF, even though it's world known, um, and people knew what it was, uh, in I think it was 2011, we had kind of one of the first events just to um, introduce or reintroduce UNICEF to people. Moving on to completely different tack, but still very important because very much looking at you as a person, the, the human behind this incredible work that you're doing with Kenny. If you were to Google you, and I'm, I know a lot of our readers are going to do this and our listeners are going to do this when they come across this podcast, you have a very definitive reputation for your style and your effortless class. Again, coming back to the changing world of work, I threw this question in here because I'm genuinely curious to hear your thoughts around this choice. How do you think the pandemic and the fact that virtual work has now become, you know, we're going back into a state where it's going to be blended, but working from home in a virtual way is definitely going to be a very big part of our lives moving forward. How do you think impact the impact is going to be on fashion and, and what do you think the impact is going to be on work attire? Or even before the pandemic hit, you had design houses like Stella McCartney, who had um, worked with um, Adidas and Victoria Beckham with Reebok. So I think we kind of started to see a more casual um, tone for clothing. But with, um, you know, Gucci and Balenciaga and all these are other putting their own sneaker lines out. Um, even, you know, Kendall Jenner and Kylie Jenner are putting out a, a faux city pant or what do they put at joggers? I think faux leather joggers I saw the other day. So I think they, everyone, the designers are kind of steering toward a more casual, not too casual where you still walk out, you know, the door and not look like you just came out of the gym. But um, I think that even when we do go back to a somewhat normal um, live. I don't think, I personally don't want to wear tight jeans or tight jackets again. I would like to have instead comfort and some high functionality, but still look good. So I think that we may see a little bit of a trend. Although that said, um, I still would like to dress up occasionally too. <laughs> the sneakers and the, and the slides and, um, have become the norm for a lot of people. Or as you see on the news, and a lot of these, <laughs> they have the dressy side up and then the bottom half are shorts or... <laughs> for their Zoom calls. I'm guilty of that one because I'm, I'm doing so much recording and, you know, virtual conferences and stuff, um, yeah, from the house. And I'm putting this like really fancy like top on, but at the bottom I've got like a pair of tights or joggers on. And oh, myself. <laughs> so Just yeah, I'm openly up. admitting that, but, but yeah, it is, it, it really is. You know, it's, it's, it's so fascinating how, this huge shift in work has, has changed something as human as fashion. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think we'll still, we'll probably see a blending of both. I think, you know, we still have people that will, will want to dress up. Um, I mean, I'm guilty of that. And then I have all these great, you know, clothes that I bought pre-pandemic that still are sitting in my closet with price tags on them that I haven't been able to wear. So it will be nice to be able to kind of get out and start wearing them. But I think we'll see, you know, I, I think functionality and comfort will be key factors in the future. I like that. That's where my designer pajamas come in then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to just move the conversation to another tack, Joyce, and just talk to you a little bit. Um, as a mother, what are you doing differently to what your parents maybe did with you when you were back on the farm? Well, I 
I'm not sure I'm doing too much differently as far as basic values. I mean, my daughter now is 26, so she, um, I think, has already learned a lot of her lessons. But as I, as my parents did with me, I tried to instill with her the value of hard work and education. And, and uh, I think one of their roles, which was one of my um, golden roles, is to always treat people with respect. And so I think that um, doesn't really change, but you know what's different now obviously is um, social media. Um, we didn't have that growing up. You know, with cell phones, social media. I think um, one of the biggest pieces of advice I gave her, which I guess most people know at that anyway, is on your social media, you need to um, be careful to um, not put on something that you don't want to look at in ten years because it'll be on there forever. And also, you know, what's really hard with social media is, is the, comp the comparison game. I think it's really tough um, on a lot of people. I find that I kind of fall in that trap, too, is you get on Instagram and Facebook and you start comparing yourself to some of the other people, which, you know, a lot of people only put the good stuff on. <laughs> so I think just to be careful um, to not play that game and be careful what you put on. And then as far as, um, you know, in the workforce, you know, sadly, she, we women still have to deal with the economic gender gap. I think more so maybe in the South than even you know, maybe in New York. But just to, you know, keep working at it, she'll have to deal with it. But she's as smart as, as any guy and, and uh, can do the job and just to try to break through that glass ceiling. You've recently traversed cancer. It, it, it's a tough, tough thing that you've just fought through. How has it shaped your humanity? Well, I definitely have a lot more patience, that's for sure. I think I've always been compassionate, but I have gained a lot more patience and I think understanding. Um, you know, no one in my immediate family had ever been diagnosed with cancer, so it was kind of, kind of a shock. Well, quite a shock when my doctor told me um, that I had cancer. Of course, those are words no one wants to hear. So I think I've definitely become more empathetic to those battling cancer. Um, I now know what it's like to go through chemo. I know what the side effects are, and I have a better understanding what cancer patients endure for sure. So, um, although, you know, thankfully I ended my chemo before the pandemic started. I can't imagine, you know, what it's like going through that right now. And appreciation for um, the medical staff, I mean, from doctors and nurses and, and janitors and everyone working in the medical field, um, especially now. What else has it done? It's also made me slow down a bit. Um, I have to be thankful for every day and to be able to, I've had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with my daughter. She just graduated law school in May, but she had been here since March. And so yeah, I've been lucky in that aspect to spend a lot of time with her that I probably wouldn't have been able to do and I've started Spanish lessons. Um, <laughs> I started taking Spanish. Don't ask me anything in Spanish right now because I'll be nervous. But um, even though I grew up about an hour and a half from the border, and when I was in high school, I took French, which has helped me so much. But <laughs> I can read a menu. I think once we're able to kind of get to a somewhat normal lifestyle and able to travel, I really wanted to um, work a lot on the border. That's one of the things I really want to work on more um, after we can get out and about more. So yes, I'm taking Spanish. Hopefully I'll be fluent. I'd love to close this conversation with you by <clears throat> asking you coming back to the world of work and the work that yourself and Kenny are doing with artists. What is the biggest set of obstacles that you're currently navigating with them? And what is a message that you would like to leave with our audience based on that? 
artists have been able to reach through Instagram and, and WhatsApp, uh, you know, markets in India and China and in markets that they would never have been able to be presented to before. Um, so I think digitally is helping a lot. I don't know, we're all just gonna have to see what happens. You know, I know the foundation itself, we're gonna rethink how we do things. We're definitely gonna be more virtual. Um, the art fairs, online galleries, they've all had to, even the auction houses are um, now doing a lot of virtual. So I think it's, we'll, you know, kind of see a new pattern. Um, hopefully we'll all be able to go back to the museums again um, and galleries, but you know, for the time being, I think just working on, um, you know, the digital platforms which may be a good thing in the long run, I think. I know that the, the artists will have definitely a larger audience. Joyce, thank you so much for being in this conversation with Doug and I today. It's, it's honestly, it's been an honor and a privilege to spend an hour with you. I know how valuable your time is. Oh, thank you. Thanks, it's been fun. Thank you, Joyce. Your insights can certainly help us paint the world in a slightly different shade. At Chaos and Rocket Fuel, you can't say we don't broaden your horizons. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it of value, please don't be a stranger. Make sure you pop back for more top of mind conversations. Just a reminder, for more information about Wonder and the integration services they supply, you can visit their website. That's WNDYR.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.